This is episode 149 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Avalanche Dogs of the Eastern Sierra. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. We've been having such serious episodes lately with the mandatory diversity statements and the economy and the plague. I thought we would do something completely different today and talk about some other working animals besides humans, and that is working dogs. In 2019, I wrote a book called The Working Dogs of the Eastern Sierra because I was really intrigued with all the dogs that I saw in Mammoth Lakes and in the Bishop area who earned their keep by doing some pretty dang hard work. And I'll start today with the avalanche dogs and hope to get to some of the other different kind of uh, dogs that I encountered during that project, uh, which was, I'll just say here right away, a super, super fun project. I met lots of great dogs and great dog owners and learned a lot about the different breeds and training methods. Uh, So it was really a fun book project uh, for me. So I'll start with Trico here. He's an Entelbucher mountain dog, uh, which is not a breed that's not particularly well-known in the United States, to the chagrin of his owner, Steve, who's on the Mammoth Mountain Ski Patrol. And he says, I've probably said Entelbucher mountain dog 500 times. Because, of course, everybody who encounters this beautiful dog wants to know what breed it is. And if you do see a copy of my book, you can check out the photographs in it, uh, which I was so lucky that dog owners, of course, now have access to such fantastic photographic equipment, and they take hundreds, if not thousands, of photos of their dogs. And so I got just these spectacular shots of dogs at work, photos that I would never have been able to get if I'd tried to do a photo shoot or if I'd tried to photograph the dogs myself, with a few exceptions. But mostly I used owner's photos or professional photographer's photos. Now, the avalanche dogs on Mammoth Mountain get a lot of publicity, uh, in part through a nonprofit called Eastside Canine. And I'll talk a little bit more about them when we get to a different dog. Uh, But for Trico and the other dogs, there have in fact been plushies made representative of the dogs. And so Trico has its own plushie. Uh, Steve told us this kind of funny story where in the summertime, he was walking along the street, he was in flip-flops, and uh, Trico was just on a leash. Normally on the mountain, of course, the dogs are in their vests, and the ski patrol are very recognizable from their big red jackets with white crosses on them. And so anyways, they're walking along the street. This family uh, pulls over to the curb, and this little boy leaned out and said, is that Trico? Uh, So Steve said, yes, it is. And so the boy held out this stuffed Trico out the window and announced, I've got one. The Mountain and Eastside Canine use these dogs for educational purposes, 
to teach about snow safety. So they have a number of public events where you can come and meet the dogs, which is super cool. Um, but mostly they try and explain to people about avalanches, kind of in concert with explaining what the dog will do. And Eastside Canine founder uh, Sean says that, you know, talking about avalanches can be very scary for people, but if you have a dog there, it kind of uh, softens up the topic and makes it more digestible. Steve got Trico uh, three years ago, so that would have been 2016. My book came out in 2019 from a breeder in San Clemente, and he went down with a couple of other patrollers to assess a litter of puppies that had been sired by a well-known agility dog. And again, if we have a chance, we'll talk about the agility dogs who also have a really interesting training and also do a kind of work. Uh, So Steve says, yeah, we went to the beach and we got a dog. So over the years, Eastside Canine has developed a, a kind of tests that they use to assess the puppies and try and select ones that they think will flourish as avalanche dogs. And one of the ways that they try and put some objectivity into it is that each patroller then will independently assess each puppy, and then afterwards they compare notes. And Steve said, you know, it it can be a kind of marginal distinction, so they try and make it objective. But in this case, Trico was the clear favorite, uh, mostly because of his performance in what they call the confined space test. And here the patrollers bring along a long, dark, box uh, with an opening at one end, and they toss a toy inside it to see if the puppy will go in after it. They don't want a puppy that will just race in there willy-nilly, like, you know, totally without uh, any thinking, nor do they want one that won't go in at all. And one of the other patrollers explained, you know, this can really be tough for puppies. Uh, Some dogs won't go in at all. But if you're an avalanche dog, you have to go into these deep, dark holes, you know, especially those that form around tree trunks in the snow. And also he points out that they do searches at night. So they they have to be comfortable in tight places. And here was uh, Trico's star performance. He kind of sniffed cautiously around the box and then looked at Steve and then walked in to go get the toy. He also did well in another test that they call the hang test, where a patroller supports the puppy under his belly with his legs and paws hanging free. And I think we talk a little bit later about that they don't want a puppy that that struggles or goes crazy, uh, just kind of, you know, freaks out at being put in a more vulnerable position. And Trico didn't exhibit any of those behaviors. He just looked at Steve like, okay, what's next? Uh, Trico was named after a small, powerful insect that is used as a lure, and his owner, Steve, is a fly fishing guide, and so that name resonated with him. Uh, He's a little shorter than the other avalanche dogs that are mostly black and yellow labs, and we'll talk a little bit more about the breeds that are appropriate for avalanche dogs. Uh, Steve says when he got him as a puppy at eight weeks, he started training with him right away. He said, I put him in my jacket and took him up in the chairlift, and he was probably thinking, okay, one day I'm looking at whales, and the next day I'm on a chairlift looking at acres of snow. Our next dog is Chief, who's the veteran now on the Mammoth uh, Mountain Avalanche dog team. He's 11. Uh, His owner, Scott, remembers the circumstances of acquiring him. 
So he said when they first started Eastside Canine, they didn't have much to go on other than getting puppies that were from a trusted breed line. And said now we have these aptitude tests, such as we talked about for Trico. Uh, And they try and distinguish between an alpha dog and a beta dog. And so he recommends a dog kind of in the middle, one that's, you know, got some drive, but will also get along with the other dogs. Because remember, these guys are all working as a team. He said these tests can really help you start eliminating alpha and beta dogs right and left. He actually recommends a dog in the middle between an alpha and a beta dog, even for a pet. Chief's mother was a therapy dog, and his dad was a hunting dog. And so Scott says, you know, right there, you've already got some kind of middle ground. So Chief is actually a black lab, and since it was a pretty significant investment uh, for Scott at the time, he made several trips to visit the puppies, and he said by the time on his third trip, after he'd gone through two sets of tests, uh, his decision was pretty clear. He said the biggest thing is the prey-play test. He said we take the puppy you know, away from the litter, out on some nice grass maybe, and pull out a brand new squeaky toy and start teasing with him with it to see how he reacts. And Scott said he thought, all of the puppies would come over to play with the toy. But he said that's not true. A lot of them uh, just ignore the whole situation or are scared and run away. And he said, we want to see some confidence and inquisitiveness. So then they tossed it a few feet away, remembering that the puppies can't see very well at that age. And he said, some will go get it and take it away, try to leave with it. Others will just smell it and walk off. He said, really, what they'd love to have is a dog that go gets it and brings it to you, you know, displays that prey drive. He said, those are the ones that want to interact with you, that have already that innate interest They also test the puppy's reactions to loud noises, so they bang pots and pans behind them, see if they run away or get aggressive. And Scott says, you know, you really just want them to turn and look at you to see what's going on. And here again, similar to the hang test, they've got a test where they roll the puppy on its back and hold it down for a few moments. He said beta dogs will just lie there and alpha dogs will start, you know, immediately struggling and biting and, you know, very aggravated and upset with the situation. He said middle dogs have kind of a reaction in between, which is what they want. Scott took Chief home when he was uh, 10 weeks old and started training him right away. He said you start bonding with the dog, good eye contact, so they can read facial expressions. He said a stern look and a happy look can go a long way. You don't have to raise a hand or yell, just give them a mean look. And ideally, the puppy first goes through basic obedience and potty training before the snow comes. So they try and time the time when they get the puppy in order to make that work out. So he says he wants them to be well past all that basic obedience and potty training when they show up for work. And he says one of the most important things that they do is get the dog accustomed to all different surfaces and machinery. And when you start thinking about all the stuff that there is on a uh, big mountain like Mammoth Mountain, it is kind of crazy. They've got quads and snowmobiles and metal grates and concrete Rocks and logs and helicopters, snow cats. It's crazy, you know, it's a lot of stimulus for a puppy. Uh, the team starts by playing hide and seek in the woods. And at first, the searches are just visual. Uh, the primary handler runs off 
with the puppy's reward toy, which I think we'll talk more about in later episodes, how important these toys are for these puppies and their training. And so the primary handler then runs off with this toy and hides behind a tree. And there's a secondary handler who holds the puppy, who, of course, is watching everything that's going on. And when the secondary ham- handler yells search, releases the puppy, then the puppy will go find the, the toy and the primary handler. And, and then, as they say, there's a big party to, to celebrate the success of the dog. For our third dog here, we're going to talk about a dog who's passed away, King, and his owner, Sean, are known as the godfathers of the Avalanche Dog Program at Mammoth Mountain. Most of the people that I talked to all had this same refrain that they would use, it all started with them. Sean will actually tell you that it really started with his uh, border collie, whose name was Stanley. And I didn't know very much about border collies when I started this book. And boy, I sure learned a lot about them because they do make uh, really excellent working dogs under certain circumstances. It just sounds like they're super smart, uh, partly confirmed here by Sean, who says that his dog was so smart, if he'd had a thumb, he was sure he could have taught him to drive his truck. As Stanley was actually uh, born out in the sagebrush, his mother was a sheep herder dog, and the dogs were on the move along with the sheep, so he was born in the wild. And John said he didn't do very much formal training uh, with Stanley, uh, but the dog's instincts and wits impressed him. And at that point, Sean had been on the Mammoth Ski Patrol for a while, and he started thinking about an avalanche dog program. He said other ski areas had dogs, and, and they had at Mammoth as much, if not more, avalanche danger. So he started reading and talking to folks in the Tahoe area who had a dog program. He said they were really willing to share their knowledge and provide support. He said their attitude was, we're all doing the same thing, trying to help people keep them from getting into situations that could be prevented. And they were a huge help to the fledgling Mammoth Mountain program. It really gave Sean a big step forward instead of him trying to figure everything out. And he said, you know, we're kind of removed in Mammoth, which is definitely true. It's just very remote up there in that little town. And Sean was thinking, you know, very wisely at this stage, who's going to you know, who's going to keep an eye on us? Who's going to keep us in check and make sure that we're up on our standards for certification and and so forth with the dog program? Uh, One of the guys mentioned there was a litter of golden retrievers that had been sired by a Tahoe avalanche dog. And Sean said goldens were actually pretty high on his list. He said they have a good prey drive. And I thought people might like to see more of a golden retriever type dog, more of a teddy bear looking dog you know, up on the mountain while everyone's skiing instead of like a German Shepherd or a Malamute. He was afraid that those breeds might scare people. So he drove up to check out the litter. He said at that point, you know, they didn't have the little games and assessment tools that they have now. Uh, He said he just had a little bit of experience uh, because he'd worked with a police detective who had gotten his uh, canine avalanche certified. And uh, we'll talk about that dog, also very famous dog in the, in the uh, Eastern Sierra on another day. Uh, so he said, you know, I wasn't completely blind, but I was pretty near darn close to it. Uh, but he said it didn't matter. When he walked up the stairs to knock on the door to introduce himself to the owners, there was a puppy that followed him up. And Sean said, you know, they say you don't pick your dog, your dog picks you. 
And he said that was true. In the case of King, he said, I never questioned if I got the right dog. So Sean wrote a proposal for Mammoth Mountain to bring in an avalanche dog program, and he said the mountain was uh, was open to it. it. Didn't take long before everything kind of proved itself. King got certified, and he and Sean were working well as a team. Sean was mo- motivated to provide a resource on the mountain, uh, but he also, you know, wanted to take care of people who ski out of bounds, which in Mammoth is a significant issue because there are some really attractive areas and features that are out of bounds and really impractical for the ski patrol to patrol. Uh, But Sean said, you know, we have quite a community that goes off-piste, and so the dogs would be really helpful if people got into trouble out there. He also saw it as kind of a career advancement opportunity for ski patrollers, which I, of course, you can imagine, I thought was a, a super... Uh, enlightened perspective to have. He said, you know, you can kind of get stuck in a rut as a ski patroller, and then if you can advance to have a dog, it adds a new twist. And I think uh, some of the handlers also talked to me about uh, you kind of become a rock star when you uh, have a dog on the mountain. Everyone's paying attention to you and asking questions about the dog and so forth. In their program in Eastside Canine, the dogs are actually owned by the handlers. And as ski patrollers, they're on the clock during the time that they're working with the dogs. And, you know, other programs have different ways that they work this out. Sometimes the dogs are owned uh, by the ski resort. But in the case of Mammoth Mountain, uh, the dogs are owned by the handlers. You know, he said there are issues with that. There are pros and cons, right? So if a handler quits, uh, leaves his ski patrol position, then he takes the dog with him. And of course, all that investment then goes with the dog and the handler. So, you know, that can be a risk or a potential downside. But he said his feeling was that the bond was most important. And they really screen and train their dog handlers for people who can make a long commitment. So it's it's really not for somebody who just wants to look cool on the mountain with the dog. He said the handler also really has to think about what the dog is exposed to. He said, you know, it's not like a pet. You just can't take them and do everyday things like rock climbing or swimming in the river. Your bond is at a really high level, but he said you have to think of them as a tool to save people's lives. They're working dogs. You know, you can't expose them to things that could be career-ending after you've put all this investment into them, and they have to go in tomorrow at 100%. Establishing this nonprofit, this uh, Eastside Canine, he said that kind of was an afterthought, uh, but it turned out to be really brilliant. He said, I knew we were creating a really valuable asset in the dog, but I needed to have funds in order to, you know, pay for his care, outfit him, and insure him. So he wanted a kind of safety net so that the handlers wouldn't be financially responsible or exposed because of their dogs. You know, it could be a real deterrent for a patroller to take on a dog if there was going to be all this financial responsibility that came with it. So Sean said the patrollers have to know that if something medically should be done for the dog, that Eastside Canine will take care of it, right? That that won't be up to them so that there's not any resentment toward the program or toward the dog, and, and it's to protect the dog. 
this uh, nonprofit Eastside Canine. I'll make a little plug for them. Uh, you can find them on the internet, and they are funded by donations. And now they're 15 years old. They're still going strong. Uh, and at the time I wrote the book, they had four dogs in, in the program. And they're also supported by the mountain and sponsorships and, you know, get the dogs get little badges that they put on their vests. So it's a super cool program, which I recommend. Uh, you can check out more about them on their website, Eastside Canine. So Sean, who's actually a pretty cerebral guy, he spent a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong. You know, when you have this many people on the mountain, this much equipment and weather and, you know, Mother Nature... Uh, so he spent a lot of time thinking about what could happen and how you'd prepare the dog for it. And he said King was just always willing to do, you know, crazy stuff, hanging out of the gondola or being lowered from a chairlift. He said there was a lot of trust. And sometimes King's enthusiasm would catch Sean by surprise. He said well, one time King jumped onto chair 11 ahead of him. Sean said he turned around and uh, King had already jumped on to the chairlift and taken off. And so they rode up to the top with Sean, a chair behind King. And at the top, uh, Sean called out to him, you know, off his usual command for him to jump down. And, and King jumped off and waited for him. No big deal. Uh, he said that King was highly trained at that point, but we hadn't done that before. It can be a little bit of a challenge to have a working dog on the mountain because the public doesn't always understand that the dog is at work and that they can't play with the dog and pet it. And so Sean said, you know, sometimes it's he has to caution people that we're working right now and uh, suggest that they come by the patrol room later to pet the dogs and take photos. He said, I wanted people to look at the dogs the same way they look at ski patrol as someone they can go to for help as a trained resource you know, one of the things that he asks for is respect for the work that the dogs have put in. He said they've been so dedicated in their work, and he wanted them to be respected for that. He did say the dogs get so much attention, it can be a distraction for the handler. He said you get a lot of exposure, uh, getting to be a rock star for the day, puts you in the limelight. He said, but the key is to stay focused and remember you still have a job to do. So kind of funny to think of our world of work being transformed uh, to very high altitudes in the snow with dogs and so forth, but it's still work. He says, actually, when they do training exercises, which they do a lot, he said distractions are actually a good thing and something that they hope for uh, because it teaches the handler and the dog how to stay on task, as much for a human as for the dog. He said, when you're on scene, the handler is multitasking. It's a lot of pressure. You need to delegate. You're searching with your transceiver. You're looking for hazards. You're looking out in case there's a secondary avalanche, people coming in and contaminating the area and messing up the scent. He said you have to think about wind and how you're working. He said it's a lot to think about to manage the scene and can be a little overwhelming. So he said that's why you train, so it doesn't become such a stressful situation. In the case of King, I did get a whole series of super cool photographs from a professional photographer where they show King at work on the snowmobile and getting out of a helicopter and all kinds of really cool scenes. Uh, but he said training exercises can also be a really cool recruiting tool for the handlers and for the puppies. So when they do their training exercise, they let the little ones, the new puppies, watch. 
And he said, it's easy to sell it to the new pup because they want to play the game too. And he said, you know, potential handlers get interested too. They see what's going on and gets them excited about that part of the program, which I think is a really cool idea to kind of to augment somebody's career as a ski patroller. And he said overall, you know, that he's pretty happy with how Eastside Canine has developed Dogs and handlers rotate in as others leave or, or uh, various life situations intervene. He said, people dig it. I've been really happy with it, and it's worked out. And bravo to you, Sean, for having the uh, foresight to put that program together. What a cool idea. Our fourth dog is Jenny Rue, who's this absolutely beautiful black lab on June Mountain, where she works as an avalanche dog with her owner, Eric. And I had a funny exchange with Eric. I think this was actually the first dog uh, that I profiled in the, that I uh, did the interview for, for the book. I grew up with German Shepherds. My family raised uh, several litters of German Shepherds, and we had German Shepherds all the time that I was growing up. So I'm kind of a German Shepherd person. And I asked Eric, how come we don't see any German Shepherds as avalanche dogs or, or dogs on the mountain? And Eric, who's a very, as most ski patrol people are, he's very diplomatic, very genial, very gracious person. And he said, oh, German Shepherds are the best. They are just the best dogs. They are so great. Uh, German Shepherds, you know, it's just an excellent breed. But, you know, there is a thing about German Shepherds as far as having them on the mountain and interacting with people. And that is, well, German Shepherds, you know, well... They bite people. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> good point. That might not work out so well in a, in a crowded mountain. So June Mountain, if you don't know, is located about 40-minute drive away from Mammoth Mountain. And if Mammoth Mountain gets too crowded for you, sometimes it's really great to just take off and go over to June Mountain. It's a fantastic place for kids, really great runs for kids. And if you buy an adult ticket, I think kids under 12 ski for free, which is really a pretty significant cost savings. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of June Mountain and was so thrilled to uh, be able to profile Jenny Rue in my book and also meet her in person in last year at the Eastern Sierra Book Festival. Maybe I'll talk for a minute about that at the end also. Okay, so a little bit of information here about just to set the scene at June Mountain, and then I'll actually read to you a little bit. I'll apologize in advance for that, but uh, it's kind of a fun story about uh, Jenny Rue. To set the scene, it's a bluebird day on June Mountain, and kids are everywhere uh, racing through the terrain park. They have some really great uh, terrain parks for kids, super fun jumps and uh, just you know interesting uh, features and so forth skittering through the trees. There are a lot of trees at June Mountain, so you do get a chance to ski amongst the trees, uh, which is also really fun for kids. Uh, you start off, actually, by getting up to the lodge by riding up this J1 lift, which can be pretty darn exciting. So it's a, a big start to your day just to ride up that exciting lift up to the lodge, which is way, way high up there with these spectacular views over uh, June Lake, the town of June Lake. In our situation here, uh, something is amiss. And so Eric, who's the chief patroller at June, orders Jenny search. That's his command to set her off. Uh, so she goes to work. 
and the children's voices fade as she concentrates. Guided by Eric's arm signals, she works a grid pattern first across and then up and down. She focuses on terrain traps, such as tree wells, where a skier or a snowboarder can get buried and suffocate within minutes. With her nose low to the snow, she works fast but is careful to thoroughly cover the area. Then she finds it. Using her amazing ability to detect different odors, she picks up on a human smell coming up from down in the snow. Her tail wagging furiously, she begins to dig with her big paws. The humans join in, and they dig carefully to avoid further injuring the body buried in the snow. Sure enough, they uncover a man lying still. But then he moves. He pulls himself free of the snow. It's a patroller who volunteered to be buried so that Jenny could practice finding someone. Thanks, Jenny, he says, and pats her on the head. She's delighted to see her friend and especially happy to see her flying squirrel toy, which was buried with him. Eric throws the toy, and Jenny races after it, snow flying. Kids gather to hail the hero dog. They ruffle her fur, pull her ears, and breathe in her face. Jenny doesn't mind. The smile on her face seems to say, the more love, the better. Bring it on. Jenny Rue comes from a prestigious board and training facility in Colorado called uh, Jenner's Run. They sometimes have litters of uh, laboratory retriever puppies. It's owned and operated by a fairly famous woman, Ann Wickman, if I'm saying that right, Colorado's first female park ranger, and she's known for her expertise in training and certifying water, cadaver, and avalanche dogs, especially for disaster work. And she's also worked various emergencies, even uh, 9-11. Eric and his wife drove to Colorado to visit them, and then they had to actually spend the night so that Anne could convince herself that they were appropriate to adopt a puppy. They did pass muster, uh, so they got to bring Jenny home. Uh, She was the only black lab in that litter of six. And now, last year, she's nearly two, and she had participated in over uh, 30 training burials. Uh, Just a note about their fur and so forth. So Eric, you know, when he's up on the mountain, he's got multiple layers on his coats and gaiters and helmet and sunglasses. Uh, But Jenny, you know, these dogs can just basically go as they are. So her waterproof bi-layered coat keeps her warm and dry. And the fur on her feet is short so that snow doesn't cling to them. Uh, At the end of this day, She rides on the snowmobile, her tongue hanging out, sweeping the hill with Eric to pick up any stragglers. And as she surveys the kids and enjoys the ride, her expression says, this is the best life for a dog. And I will uh, just comment here in general that the dogs that I interviewed and whose owners I interviewed for this book, it was really amazing how much they enjoy their work. In fact, I think there are some kind of cautionary tales in there about when you take a dog's work away, As often happens with a human, uh, they do suffer emotionally and psychologically from that withdrawal. So there you have it, some uh, working tales uh, from a different species today. Oh, I almost forgot to mention the Eastern Sierra Book Festival. For the last two years, my publishing company, the Whistling Rabbit Press, has sponsored the event, and it's been hosted by the Mammoth Museum at the beautiful Hayden Cabin next to the Mammoth Creek in Mammoth Lakes. And last year in 2019, 
I invited all of the dogs and dog owners who had been featured in my book uh, to come to the festival, and it was quite a dog riot. Lots of people came to meet the dogs. It was really rewarding to connect these hardworking dogs with people who were so interested in their story and training and breeds and the work that they do. This year, because of the coronavirus, we won't be able to hold an in-person event, uh, but I'm getting really excited about a virtual event that we'll hold on July 12th, pretty much all day, and I'll be interviewing various authors and talking about books. Uh, It will, again, be a one-day celebration of books and reading and writing and publishing. You can find out more about it at the website easternsierrabookfestival.com. We also have a Facebook page, and you can also sign up for our mailing list where I will keep you abreast of what the schedule looks like. So please join us. We'd love to have you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.